This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. I want to extend a very, very warm welcome to you here this evening for this event that is part of Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And we're so glad that you could come out this evening. Thank you for, for being here. We're especially pleased tonight to welcome back to Whitworth Dr. Trish Morita Mullaney, a 1989 graduate of what was then Whitworth College, now Whitworth University, um, and now a faculty member and, and scholar at Purdue University in Indiana. So this is our great pleasure to have her here this evening. Um, her life of leadership all started when she became president of Jenkins Hall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Trish was ASWC, now ASWU, Vice President, and received the Servant Leadership Award for her contribution to the community. Uh, she studied communication and enrolled in off-campus programs, including the semester-long Central American Studies program that she has described as transformative. And we want to welcome, especially those of you who are also part of that program with her. Dr. Marita Mullaney became a Hoosier after her Whitworth years, receiving a second bachelor's degree in elementary education with certification in English language learners from Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. She went on to earn two master's degrees before receiving her PhD in language, literacy, and culture from Purdue. Oh, that was IUPUI, sorry, okay. IUPUI. Currently on the faculty of Purdue University, Dr. Marita Mullaney is a productive scholar who has written about second language indicate education, social justice issues, and ELL work, and about the experiences of Asian students and educators in the field of education. We are so grateful that Dr. Morita Mullaney is here this evening to talk to us about busting the binaries, the experience of Asian Americans navigating the in-between spaces of discussions about race that often are focused on issues of black and white experience. We want to join, um, I, I'm going to ask you to join me in welcoming Trish, but I also want to mention we're so pleased to have her daughter Sachi and her friends Mary Bear Shannon and Tim who are visiting here this evening with her. So for now, please join me in welcoming Dr. Trish Morita Mullaney. Thank you. Thank you. So. Hi, everybody. It's good to be back. So I hear this is the core 152 50, hall. So, and um, wow, it's big and it's actually really nice. So, but back in the day, we did not have laptops or cell phones. So, um, which meant we paid a lot of attention. So, right? <laughs> right, mixture up. So, it's good to be back with you. It's good to see familiar faces, new faces, and to be back in this space. And um, I'll, I'll tell you that this was an interesting preparation and getting ready for this, um, being excited and nervous at the same time but also a really great reflective exercise for me to think about being at Whitworth from 1989 
uh, to the present and how my thinking has changed over the years about my own racial identity um, as, a, as a new scholar, as a parent, as a resident of a historically segregated uh, community in the Midwest, and also reflecting back on my own experiences here at Whitworth, which, which at the time was a predominantly white campus, and, and, and to a large degree still is, um, but the thinking has definitely changed, and it's, and, and, and that's neat to see what that trajectory is. But um, anyway, but it was helpful to go back and think about my own experiences while here at Whitworth, um, being very viscerally visible as an Asian and not really knowing what to do with that. Um, and so you're gonna get to see some memories in time of uh, what my experiences were like here at Whitworth. And, um, what I will do is I will lace in my own experiences in addition to some research I'm doing with some other Asian scholars um, about the in-between spaces that are complicated by the institutional bookends of the binary of the black-white binary, which means one or the other, right? And so whenever you have an either-or situation, um, it becomes problematic because we tend to think in right and wrong or better or worse. And um, that complicates particular voices that are op often absent from conversations around race, racism, and racialization. So I'm gonna walk through that with you today. And um, we're a small group, so if there's something that's not clear, you can, at, you can jump in and ask questions. Um, but we'll reserve some time at the end to, to chat. So, all right. So, I wanted to start with my own uh, Japanese-American um, heritage and history and uh, walk you through that so you can see um, where I'm personally situated in this work. So, so let's go back a couple generations, and this is my um, father's side of the family, and these are my paternal grandparents, Hanami and Midori Morita, and um, they had an arranged marriage, and Hanami, George, was an Issei, and Midori was a really young Nisei. She, um, her parents had just immigrated, and she was born pretty quickly upon their arrival in the U.S. But really, Midori really identifies more as an Issei, and in Japanese that means the first generation to come over um, in the 40s. I'm not used to being Britney Spears, so this is not... <laughs> so bear with me as I navigate through this. I might have to shift to the mic. Okay, so that's a little bit about them. And so this is, I'm not quite sure when this is, but this is pre-World War II, okay? And this is in, in America, in Los Angeles. And let's move forward a little bit. Um, this is Hanami and Midori, and you can notice that the landscape is much different. And this is their family of five, four boys and one girl. Um, the girl up here was actually born here on this turf. And this is in Amache. And Amache um, is in Granada, Colorado. And this is the second internment camp that my father and his family were in um, during World War II. And they were at Amache for about three years, and they were in Thule Lake for about almost two years. So they were in camp for quite some time. And for those of you that are not familiar with um, this part of our history, when I'm on the West Coast, people tend to be more familiar when I'm in the Midwest. Not as much, because a lot of people who are from the West Coast may have um, schools and districts that actually require this piece of history in the curriculum. But where I live now, that it is not. So when I tell this story, there's usually absolute shock 
around um, this concept or this, that this, this event in history actually happened. But Executive Order 9066, um, following the bombing of Pearl, um, of Pearl Harbor by the Japanese, essentially placed anybody of Japanese ancestries into internment camps that were quickly assembled um, inland of the Pacific One region, which was considered a targeted access zone for, um, how should I say, a, a military zone of possible interference to the war efforts. And so Japanese um, Americans and Japanese nationals were evacuated, right? And the language of the government was evacuation, right? And a lot of Japanese American um, groups such as the JACL prefer to use the term now incarceration and not evacuation um, to frame it in a very, very different way, right? So they lived here. Um, this is a Mache and that's a barrack in the background and I'm really thrilled that we found this photograph um, because cameras weren't really allowed into the camps and so we actually have, this is the one photo we have of camp. So, and this is my cute father here, right there. So, anyway. Um, so, you can see that they were quite young um, at the time of the internment. So, let's move forward and look at them post-World War II with his dad in Seabrook, New Jersey. Okay, now people would say, why would a family originally from Northern California end up in this small town called Seabrook, New Jersey? And there's a reason. There was a farmer there, Farmer Seabrook, and how many of you have eaten bird's-eyed spinach before? Right, flash frozen spinach. So Farmer Seabrook was an entrepreneur, and he was very good at finding international labor. Um, he um, employed many Puerto Ricans, he employed many Italians, and he provided them with housing, right? Inexpensive housing, and it, the housing was very segregated. The Puerto Ricans were here, the Japanese were here. And what he did is he recruited from a lot of the internment camps as the, the internment orders was concluding. And he brought many Japanese to Seabrook Farms because the first iteration of Issei immigrants were mostly farmers. And so with this, my dad, um, his brothers and sisters, and his parents all worked in the spinach factory to some degree, either in the fields, in the canning, um, in the maintenance. Um, they all had a part in the production of Seabrook Farms uh, and bird's eye spinach. And what's interesting is the farmer paid everybody with silver dollars. Right? So if, when he went into town to get ice cream, you'd pay the ice cream guy with a silver dollar, and they go, oh, you work for Farmer Seabrook. And they go. So they may say with pride, yes, I do, or yes, I do. See how kind of conflicting that is? You know, am I owned, or, or, or should I be pri uh, pow uh, feel pride that I work for this wonderful entrepreneur? So, um, and there's actually a small little museum devoted to this small piece of history. Um, and I was able to figure this all out um, as a result of a grant. So um, this is my mother and my father. You can see that my mother is white. She's actually born in Brazil. I was sharing that with Ron earlier this week, that my mom was born in San Paulo because she was uh, a missionary child. She's white. And my dad is Japanese-American uh, Nisei, uh, second generation. And then this is me as a young child, and third generation. So these are my siblings. We grew up in Northern California, and we are Sansei, and we are what you call Hapas, okay, H-A-P-A, which is a term that you hear a lot on the West Coast and in Hawaii, um, meaning that you are half white, half 
Japanese. Um, sometimes it's used among other um, uh, groups as well, um, but we identify as Hapa. And then let's move forward. This is my immediate family. So there's dad, and that's Jeff, also a grad of 1989. Um, and these are our twins, okay? And one of my twins is here tonight, my daughter, Sachi. Raise your hand. So she's right there. And then my son. Now, um, if you take a look, one of the things that's really interesting about this photograph is that my, my two children have had fundamentally different experiences with race. And I can't take away the fact that they physically look very, very different. When Micah was young, he was blonde and blue-eyed. And I remember being in the YMCA, walking out with my two twins in matching car seats and matching onesies. And I knew they were my twins because I saw them be born. And <laughs> someone was chasing me down the aisle saying, what are you doing with that white baby? Um, bring back that white baby. And then someone from my church, a good Presbyterian woman, intervened and said, that is her child. And so, again, there was this construction around, you know, who, what belonged to me, et cetera. Um, and what's interesting is that Sachi had, could narrate very early experiences about race um, in elementary school, whereas Micah was not able to articulate those until much later. And part of that is because one day he said, Mom, I'm white. And I went, hmm, I think we need to do some more storytelling. And when he was about eight or nine, he, um, he had some more formative expressions around that. But they did have very different um, experiences around race. So um, after I get tenure, that's my N of two. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write that up. So, um, so let's move to Whitworth, um, 1885 to 1989. So some of the class of 89 is in the room. Do you all see each other? So um, there we go. So here's Jeff and I, my husband and I. There's Michael Leroy. Tad's up there. Steve, are you in here? Okay. So, but we had a really good turnout for our reunion, but look at the portrait, right? I mean, immediately I noticed that um, it's a predominantly, uh, a, a predominantly group, a predominantly white group. And when I say that, I don't want you to say that I think badly of these people because they are white. But I think when you are in particular spaces like this, um, this is something that's very visceral to me, um, where I do a scan of the room, and I immediately am thinking about myself, and I'm thinking about how others see me, right? I can't help it. It's just, it's a construction that's almost automatic that I go into, so. Um, so coming from the Bay Area and coming to Whitworth um, was very formative because in a way, the, the racial composition of Whitworth was very different from where I grew up. Um, and so those affinity groups weren't there in the same way, right? So let's move forward. So I had um, the archivist pull up some information back in the day, 1989. So um, you can see that this is how Whitworth talks about its diversity, right? What, there's some things that I noticed very quickly. Um, we're talking about how many countries are here, our undergraduates, the states, our foreign nations, right? Um, but there's not anything about race, right? So that's interesting, right? So where, what does that mean about where Whitworth was and its mission as far, as far as how it understands difference and diversity? So let's move forward. This I pulled right off of your website. So take a look here. We now call underrepresented racial ethnic enrollment is 22%, and I think the incoming class is higher than that. I think it was 
2526. And that number, I met with um, Beck Taylor this, um, this afternoon, and he was telling me that that number is really, really growing. But what's interesting is when you say underrepresented minority, um, at Whitworth that does include Asian internationals and Asian Americans. On other campuses, much like the campus that I'm at, at a public university, an underrepresented minority often does not include Asian Pacific Islanders, okay? Because, be, because there's such high representation at Research One campuses of Asian internationals, um, because they are overrepresented, they um, have, in a way, been de-minoritized because they're there in such concentrations. And so that work is coming out from Valdez Young, where there's a process of demonortization that happens among Asians, which essentially and institutionally makes them white. And it doesn't show up in, the, it shows up in the physical portrait as you walk across campus, but it doesn't show up in your written content in a catalog. So anyway, so okay, so there's me back in, um, that's my Saga card. And, um, <laughs> and we're, this is the site of Saga, right? Yeah, this is it. So, um, and I would say when I came here, I was wide-eyed and wondering. So my, my siblings would often say, you know, that was when you had your eyes wide open, right? That you wanted to be white because you were in this new space that um, you weren't really sure about. Um, whereas my siblings all went to University of California systems that had higher concentration of um, AAPIs there. So, um, so there is... Some of you remember, this is from the Centennial Campaign, thanks to Tad. Tad got that pulled up, but it's the poster child. Um, and so it was an honor, but it was a complicating honor because I wondered, am I there because of what I've done for Whitworth, or am I there because I create this portrait of inclusivity, right? And um, also, the portrait of inclusivity is very complicated by when you, when you have Asians as your sense of diversity, it's a very safe in-between space, right? It's white enough, it's not quite black, it's not quite brown, but it's sort of like in-between. And so there can be uh, a mechanism of safety that institutions do to make these particular choices. So I don't know who made these decisions, but they're things that I wonder about, right? They're things that I wonder about. Um, at the time, I think I just went, okay, okay, I'll come to your picture. So, all right. Let's move forward a little bit. Um, in my junior year, I ran for ASWC vice president, okay? And um, I think at the time they gave us like a $50 stipend and we were allowed to buy posters or buttons or whatever um, to, you know, advertise ourselves as candidates in addition to doing a speaking circuit, et cetera. So, um, if you notice this, this is Brad Taylor who is a little bit older than me, and some of us remember Brad Taylor. He's a very, very talented artist. And um, one of the things that happened when I first came to Whitworth, because my last name is Marita, and my first name is Patricia, which often gets truncated to Pat, I was constructed people Pat Marita. And in this time period, the Karate Kid had recently come out. And so people made that quick connection, oh, Pat Marita. And I, just started getting really annoyed that that was a frequent inquisition in my freshman year. So I finally said, yeah, sure, he's my uncle. You know, like, I can't believe that people are asking me this, right? Because Marita, to me, in a Japanese context, is like Smith, you know, or Jones, right? 
but people were making that connection. So I remembered when Brad um, said, you know, you should do this. I think this would be really effective. I remember saying, no, I, I, don't, I don't know. But somehow I was convinced it happened, and I was self-actualizing my own racial identity on Facebook, and a, a classmate of mine posted this and reminded me about this. And it happened at a very timely event. So actually, I have it in my purse. I actually have it with me. So, um, so this is really complicating because some would maybe argue that this was a very effective campaign, but um, it wasn't necessarily a campaign that I like absolutely sanctioned, but it certainly looked like that. But I felt um, a level of, um, how should I say, my mechanism of humor to survive was pushed by, um, by having this, um, this artist sort of paint his picture of me, right? And so I felt pressured. So um, I think if I was, you know, nearly 50 back then, I probably would have said no, but I wasn't. You know, I was 20, 21, so. Also, during the same time period, one thing that happened is my dad got a $20,000 check and an apology from President Reagan um, with the Civil, um, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. And I remember getting that news um, about that, and I called up my dad, and I said, Dad, this happened like a while ago. Like, why didn't you tell me? And he goes, well, you know, what's to tell? It happened. It's sort of water under the bridge, you know. Like, that's in the past, this is now. Let's focus and move forward. And so one of the things that that helped me think about is that my dad is in this in-between space between his father and mother and then me as a third generation. And in that in-between space, there are particular things that happen with first-generation U.S.-born Asians um, that are very different and even differ along different strands, Filipinos, Japanese, Chinese, there might be different narratives. But, but always, in a lot of immigration research, the first generation to live in America, particularly for immigrants of color, is very complicated because they toggle the space of their national heritage and their new national, um, you know, their national origin. So, so this all happened um, while I was here at Whitworth. So. And I remember Mary Bear and I talked about that a lot. We talked about it a lot, and I wondered why my dad didn't say more about it. So, so I want to move into the, the, the rich content about talking about the in-betweenness. And I'm quoting Gary Okihiro here in 1994, who wrote a seminal piece called, Is Yellow Black or White? Right? So where, where do Asians um, fall on that continuum, the phenotype continuum of race? Okay. So let's take a look at, so usually the way that race is institutionally understood and also locally understood and even individually understood is often with this bookend of white or black, right? So either or, okay? Not a continuum, okay? And there's a compelling amount of literature, I should say that's more recent, that talks about the in-between, particularly for Latinos and Asians, and that we are regarded as forever foreigners, regardless of how long we've been here, okay? Um, and so there's a, there's a construction around language, there's a construction around race, and there's a construction around national origin. So I gave this example earlier today, but um, I teach an undergrad class that is um, all white, um, predominantly female, and it's one of the last classes they take their senior year in bilingual education. Um, so they're getting ready to go out and be teachers. 
and um, one of the things I notice, there's three sections. I teach one section. My colleague, colleague teaches another two. And I noticed that my sections for the last two semesters have been appreciably smaller, right, where she had more students. And some people say, well, you have less grading. Like, it's not a big deal. Um, but I wondered about that. But then in the first days of, of um, teaching, um, one of the things I do when I'm in the zone, I just sort of ignore everybody and get ready. And I just noted this, this sort of silent awkwardness in the room. And then when I started to speak, I noticed that people got a little bit more relaxed in their chair. And you've got to understand, because I'm at Purdue University, and one in five of our, or two in five of our students are international students, um, the thinking that I was constructed as a foreigner that possibly was going to have an accent and was possibly going to be unintelligible to them. So, but after the shoulders went down, the next week, a couple students trickled into my section, right? And that happened again the following semester. So I've got to do some more longitudinal data, right? I've got to see if this pattern seeks out. But to me, it's curious, right? Because they see my last name, Marita, right? Versus a Jones, right? So people can make those choices um, even before they see you. Um, and when they see you, there's this tentativeness. And so that's the whole construction of race, is that you are inscribed with meaning before you open your mouth. So that, to me, is a very powerful piece that revolves around nativism. So, um, so here's something from Mary Frances Berry. I'll just give you a minute to read that. So there's this whole notion that, um, how should I say, that there were three nations and that um, if we strive to be something other than these two races, um, then potentially, you know, there's always a concern about racism, right? That we only talk about racism on the context of the white end or the black end, but not in between. We don't have, and because we are constructed, Latinos and Asians are constructed as forever foreigners, we sometimes use language as a proxy because it's okay to talk disparagingly about language, but it's not okay to talk disparagingly about race, right? That's a really unique social construction um, in, in the United States. So let's talk a little bit about the generational in-between. So let's take a look here. Um, first generation, second generation, U.S. born, third generation, fourth generation. So you can see this is my personal portrait. And then we also have something called a 1.5. And these are typically um, students who have been born in another country, have spent maybe a, their elementary years here, maybe middle school, and then move over. And so they're able to linguistically toggle both worlds as well as understand the social nuances of both contexts, right? And a lot of times, 1.5 generations are considered effective ambassadors for the new, more newly arrived group of immigrants, right? So we have an, or, an organization in our city um, that actively recruits 1.5 generation for the newly arrived Burmese um, to help them navigate this uh, new, new setting, right? So you have the generational in-between, and as I stated earlier, there's always complication for this first U.S.-born immigrant. So think about maybe the Asian students or friends um, or colleagues that you have and where they fall on this continuum and um, what, what can be conflicting about this particular generation, right? A lot of times, first-generation immigrants of color parallel the hard work ethic 
of sort of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant perspective of pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's going to be difficult, and so there's a parallel of hard work, which is something that we also value as North Americans, right? But second generation, and this is, we're seeing this particularly with, um, with in my context in bilingual education is with Latino students, is that um, they are Mexican by heritage, but they're American by national origin, and they don't fit neatly. And one of the things that happens a lot with this generation is there's an almost, an almost rapid fire language loss. They, sometimes we are using interpreters between parents and children instead of the interpreter being there for the teacher and the family. It's actually between, uh, within one family. So, so there's a lot of things that happen in this adjustment period, but the thinking is if you assimilate more quickly that you're going to have greater access. And that has actually not really been proven in research for many second generation um, immigrants of color specifically. So. so there's also a linguistic in-between which I talked about and I, I talked with some students today about this whole notion of insipid bilingualism. I can never say it right, it sounds really cool. But insipid bilingualism is that you've had exposure to a language minority or um, your mother tongue, perhaps it's uh, Tagalog, perhaps it's um, uh, Falam, right? But you may have some receptive capacity, but maybe not productive capacity. You probably aren't able to read and write in that language, right? But you have sort of a, 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 a slight connection to it, right? You have sort of the heritage connection to it, but you may, may not be able to produce that language, right? So that's what you call an insipid bilingual, right? So in my work with many Latino English language learners, they won't say I'm an insipid bilingual. They'll say I understand Spanish, but I don't use Spanish because I don't feel like I can use it well. And then over time, you see language loss that's pretty rapid fire, right? So a lot of scholars would just suggest that when you erode languages, you erode connections with families. So when we say, only speak English at home with your child, um, in schools, in government, whatever institution is sending that message, what we're doing is we are eroding linguistic connections, right? Yet we feel that it is like the national effort to have a lingua franca. Um, but what we do is, is some things get severed, right? So the Latino community is a perfect example of that because they are losing their native language at the fastest rate of any linguistic group in, in the U.S. Right, so, and particularly for AAPIs, particularly in my context, is that, you know, there was much discrimination following the incarceration of the Japanese Americans that, um, you know, there, there really wasn't, there was, there was pernicious force from the family, from the schools, from the churches to only learn English, right? There were Japanese Saturday schools and Japanese schools um, that were around but some of those existed because many Japanese felt like they were going to be repatriated back to Japan. And so it was a way of linguistic survival because they thought their children were going to have to go back and learn Japanese um, and not know Japanese. So um, there's really different reasons um, for that. The Japanese schools that are around today that still exist are all about recapturing that heritage language, but it didn't happen the immediate generation thereafter. It's happening in the third and the fourth as sort of the shoelaces are really untied at this point, which makes it more difficult to reclaim. All right, so you can see sort of this linguistic 
passage here. So I want to now focus on the institutional in-betweenness, and I'm going to look, um, uh, look very specifically at some things here, and then we'll go back to the individual in-betweenness, and then I'm going to share a brief study with you, and um, we'll have questions thereafter. So, so I want to talk to you about the black-white binary um, and busting the binaries. So the conception that race in America consists either, either exclusively or primarily of only two constituent racial groups, the white and the black. In addition, the paradigm dictates that all other racial identities and, group, and groups, there's a typo in there, the United States are best understood through the black-white binary paradigm. Right? That's the work of Juan Perea. All right. So to get more detailed, um, I love what Alcoff says. He does a lot of work in the area of honorary whiteness and also in the black-white binaries. He talks about it is not descriptively adequate. It does not represent the experiences of Asians and Asian Americans, um, but it has prescriptive force, right? There are particular things that happen institutionally as a result of us only honoring these two bookends, okay? So you have the history of legal cases, Supreme Court cases. Um, Asians have sometimes been constituted as black as early as the 1800s and sometimes have been constituted as white, right? So there's some examples of that in higher education, that they have essentially been deminoritized and made white for institutional purposes. So you could be at a uh, higher education campus and they would not show up in a minority representation, right? That, that is possible. Um, housing and zoning. Um, we had a legislator in our, in our state say, we should have more Chinatowns in, in, our, um, in our city when he went to an international corporation and saw many Chinese around him. Not really understanding that the reason that Chinatowns emerged was a result of very, you know, segregating the Chinese to a particular part of town because they were considered yellow peril and putting them to the side. So... And then educational policies, which certainly is my area. We just talked about that. And at Whitworth, Asians are considered as a part of the underrepresented minorities, but that's not very frequent. So, um, so what happens with the black-white binary is there's a disempowerment to other groups that fall in between, right? It's sort of the evacuation of a collective and institutional identity, but also those individual voices. Um, Racism and discriminatory practices is only an issue between blacks and whites, right? And it doesn't happen in between, right? Um, um, honorary whiteness is an earned status of Asians. They are white enough. They have approached whiteness. They are cooperative agents of whatever normalcy and assimilation is. Um, but again, it is something that is earned. It is not something that is given. So that's really important. And if you earn something, you can also lose it. So um, we've also had the inclusion and exclusion of Asians in legal cases. And then Asian American groups and Asian um, groups have often been used as a bully pulpit to marginalize other groups of color, right? So the model minority, they're good. Why aren't you good, right? The Asians are doing so well. Why aren't the Latinos doing well? So. I actually had an administrator ask me that. Um, and then binaries really limit coalition building among groups in between the bookends. 
with um, African-American groups. There is evidence that that is happening and has happened in our history, but it's not usually augmented in a way that, that's, that's in our repertoire. So, um, so let's talk about disempowerment. So this is, um, this is um, something that I find, you know, we, we, we do, when you enroll your children in school, you have to select a race. And race is considered a social construction. We no longer talk about, you know, one-eighth a drop of blood and you are this, right? Now it is a social construction. And I didn't believe it, so I called the U.S. Department of Education to ask them, what is your definition of race? And they told me it is a social construct. I said, the government said it's a social construct. So it must be true, right? So, <laughs> um, so... But again, you know, what if you identify across, uh, across multiple races? What do you check, right? Back in the day, since I'm biracial, I was like, well, I guess I'll just choose other. Now you're able to choose multiple, and so our new census data is going to look really, really different. We're going to see some very fascinating permutations because that's now allowable. Um, but again, these collective identities are foisted upon us, and when you demark the term Asian, you know, does that mean the same for a third-generation Japanese-American versus a first-generation Filipino versus a refugee from Burma, right? Does that, all, does that narrative all mean the same things with different history, um, different generational statuses, different political conditions for their immigration? So, um, but anyway, one of the things that I find really interesting is that most institutions don't allow you to change your race. Right? So if you identify as Asian and you want to change your race, most institutions won't allow you to do that. And um, I'm not really sure why that is. I do know of principals that have changed the identity of some of their um, multiracial students to be black to enhance the academic achievement of that particular subgroup. I've seen that sort of manipulation of data along lines of race to more additively portray um, the African-American community. So, so here are um, is race and racism and the inclusion or the exclusion of Asians. So the first being is, um, it's only an issue that we solve between blacks and whites. Um, it's also problematic because it really puts um, whiteness or being white or acting normal or this ideal norm as a center and we have to just sort of revolve around that, right? And so, What's problematic about that is that if we're really fundamentally wanting to change the way that we do things, if we operate from the center, the center is very unlikely to move, right? So that's what's difficult about this being a pivot point, is the pivot point doesn't really move. We all move around it, but the pivot point just stays in one place. And so that's what's problematic when, when that is sort of the dominant way of thinking and operating. So, um, so, and then quickly, we have the model minority stereotype. And Arlen Migliazzo and I were talking earlier today that, that no stereotype, be it additive or subtractive, is really healthy um, or good. So, so let me share with you about the model minority stereotype and really where it first emerged. And it did first emerge from the Japanese-American community, um, but again, as as sort of a bully pulpit for other racial minority groups that were not um, doing as well for however you want to define that. Um, so this was in 1966, which is really interesting because this is like at the pivot point of the civil rights movement, 
right? But we're still seeing content like this show up in the New York Times. And when you read it, um, you can just Google this and it'll show up when you read it. It's a very interesting way that they sanitize the language to talk very positively about Asians and negatively about other minority groups. Um, and this is, you know, from the New York Times, so it's interesting. And then the media construction, so these are from the 80s, the Newsweek and the Time Magazine of the model minority, right? The whiz kids, right? They're doing great, they're kicking, they're kicking, they're doing well, okay? So what if you're an Asian student that isn't fulfilling that model minority stereotype? Are you disloyal to being Asian? Are you disloyal to the model minority myth? Um, are you gonna be treated well within your, within your racial, racial community? Um, are you gonna be an outcast? Um, are you disrupting the positive orientation that others may have of the Asian community if you underperform? So, so um, these are the first things, and you notice they have like Stanford on there, right? So, um, also one of the realities around race and racism, if we think back to the LA riots of 1992, um, to take you back, Rodney King was an African American who was beaten very severely by white cops in Los Angeles. And um, the white cops were exonerated or they, they were not indicted. Um, and the African American community um, exploded. There were riots um, in um, Los Angeles as a result of this. And I'm gonna come back to that in a minute, okay? Um, so we saw com conflict not along a black-white binary, but along a black-Asian continuum there. Um, more recently, so I don't know how many, are how many people are following this case, but this is in New York City. Peter Liang, a, a very young Chinese-American, a new trainee, um, his, his gun accidentally went off and he killed an African-American man and did not attend to his medical needs immediately. And the Asian community is very divided. Do we build coalition with the African-American community around the killing of an innocent African-American man? Or do we say the institution of the police force is not thinking responsibly about how race constructs responses to racial incidents? So there's real, there's real division going on there um, right now. So. Um, but there is a lot of long-term coalition building that has been evident among Asian groups um, and black and Latino groups, but that's not generally what we hear in the news. That's not generally the social constructions that come up. And again, that's the domineering presence of the black and white binary. So we've also used Asians as mechanisms for legal action or inaction. So um, in the town that I live in, in Indianapolis, if uh, who recently finished a, a school desegregation effort, um, Latinos and Asians are white. So I could be in an all-Latino building, an all-Asian building, and it would be regarded as a white building, um, and vice versa. So do you see how that complicates things um, when they don't have their own unique identity, right? They're still Asian, they're still Latino, but as far as creating school balances, they're regarded as white. And there's only about three or four places in the country that were able to have a unique identifier for Latinos as a distinct group, um, but that, did, that, that, to my knowledge, did not happen with Asian groups, okay? And then Asians have been positioned very strategically in this particular Supreme Court case that I'm very interested in because it happened in the town of my birth in San Francisco. It's called Lau v. Nichols. Anybody heard of Lau v. Nichols? 
Right on. Okay, our ELL people in the room, raise it up. So Lao V. Nichols was the Chinese-American community of Chinatown saying, our children are in school, but there is no provision for their lack of English, and so you must provide some type of language education to them in addition to what you're doing. So them just being in the space is not promoting access. So as a result, um, they sued the San Francisco Unified School District, um, and in 1974, they prevailed. And um, what happened is they said the president, just having an English learner present in your classroom um, and allowing them to come to school is insufficient. You have to have programming that is research-based to meet their needs. And thus, Lau v. Nichols is now the seminal case that really is the history of the galvanizing of the movement of English language learning and bilingual education. What is interesting about this that I have just recently learned in the last five years is the gentleman who was the lead lawyer in this particular case, he says the case really should have been Lopez versus Nichols because there were more Latino students, um, there, but there were more, um, they were more English proficient. They were more intermediate stage, whereas the Chinese were more newcomers, right? And also, this lawyer said, face it. You know, I'm going to put them up to the Supreme Court. I want this thing to pass. I'm going to use the Asians as a proxy and their model minority stereotype to promote this game. And he did it, and it worked. Unanimously, unanimously passed in 1974. But not a lot of people think of it as Lopez versus Nichols because it was Lau v. Nichols. So you can see in this thing, the additive stereotype was used to materialize gains really for the larger language learning community. But um, some people question the authenticity of using, using that as a strategy. So, and then, then again to the bully pulpit, right? We'll use the good performance of the model minority to bully other racial, um, racial groups into um, behaving more properly, aligning with um, dominant ideologies, okay? Um, so I want to go back to honorary whiteness, which is also a construct that helps inform the model minority stereotype and vice versa. And this is the reproduction or the construction of honorary white or honorary whiteness. Um, but again, let's just think about that. If you, if you get an honor to be a guest at the table, if you do something improper, you might be asked to leave that table, right? So you're sort of there, but your status is somewhat provisional, okay? That's what I mean by honorary whiteness, okay? So here's an example again of um, 1966. So you say schooling, so we're going to contrast this with the conflicts of other racial groups and then the Chinese-American schooling is important, right? So here's honorary whiteness. I had those a little bit out of order. Um, it's a, it's a rule that non-whites inhabit and is often conceived as altruistic and assimilationist, um, and that's the goal. And when we think about the AAPI community, um, again, it's earned through hard work. Um, it's a privilege, and it's, tenant, it's not a right, it's a privilege, right? And just like we tell our 16-year-old Sachi when they get their license, right? It's not a right, it's a privilege, so it can be taken away, right? It's tentative, not absolute. And then it involves the repressions of particular parts of our identities, okay? So that's honorary whiteness. Um, and then lastly, binaries restrict coalition building. So one of the things that happened with the LA riots in 1992 
is that the Japanese and Chinese American community, again, that was mostly third and fourth generation, they disassociated themselves with Korean immigrants, right? Because it narrowed, they had a particular agenda of addressing white violence against Asians. And because that was their focus, they took on an identity um, of being an honorary white instead of working in coalition with the Korean community. So, so let's move to the individual in-betweenness and talking a little bit about these particular constructs about in-betweenness. So one we know is nativism, which we discussed. Linguicism, serving as a proxy for racialization. Gender, one of the things we know about gender, um, and there's more and more scholarship coming out about this, is that uh, female Asians are usually um, hypersexualized. Can I say that at Whitworth? Um, they are constructed in that particular way, whereas uh, Asian men are um, defeminized in many ways and demasculinized and seen as neutral in a way. And then also there's the construction um, that we have lack of social skills, that um, we're awkward, right? So, so you can imagine that that places somebody in between, right? Those are particular um, characteristics, so. So I think we've talked about this, so, um, but I think the big takeaway here is linguicism is a proxy for racism. Okay, so linguicism, um, this might be a new term, but in my work it's very important because I look at how language gets racialized in particular ways. So when people talk in particular ways, um, how does that inform the racialization of that particular individual? So. Um, but we have a privileged way of speaking and talking, right? And I know that. I work in academia, and there is a privileged way of speaking, right? Um, and I can't call anybody Kathy Lee. I have to call you Dr. Lee and Dr. Van Fossen, and you have to be very particular in those ways. Um, but linguicism is most pernicious in places where there are formal lingua francas or official languages, right? Um, plus social constructions of language being aligned to national loyalties. So English is linked to Americanism, et cetera. So. All right. So back to the in-between. So I'm just going to flash those as a reminder. And I am going to talk a little bit about um, a study that I have done with um, another colleague, and we are examining how Asian-American female leaders specifically, not educators, but leaders are positioned in the field of educational leadership because there's very few Asians represented in um, education, which is really interesting. And part of that is because um, there's an impression that Asians have to mitigate racial conflict, right? And what we learned is that definitely is the case in this particular study. They serve as interlocutors of racial conflict and so we wanted to examine what um, our behaviors were, uh, the, my, my behaviors, the, behavior, uh, the behaviors of our participants, and what was happening and how we negotiated um, our leadership as Asian women, knowing all of the aforementioned things, okay? The in-betweenness, so. Um, so again, um, this is a little bit about the study. Um, we used a lens of critical race theory and we focused very specifically on counter-storytelling. Give me a thumbs up if you've heard of counter-storytelling before. All right, okay. 
So counter-storytelling is a mechanism for um, people of color to talk about um, stories that might really differ from you know, how you grew up, how it was different than maybe growing up in a white household. And they're meant to be um, in internal to the individual and internal to the same racial affinity group. And sometimes when we do counter-storytelling outside of our own racial affinity group, it's almost like we are revealing some of our secrets. And once your story becomes public, right, people get to decide what they're going to do with that story. Right? Are they going to use it to transport it and misuse it? Or are they going to use it to help them change their own thinking? So when we do counter-storytelling outside of racial affinity groups, there, have to, there has to be particular conditions of understanding. And one of the things that's also problematic among many scholars with counter-storytelling is that it's always incumbent upon people of color to tell their stories, right, right, racially. And so is that an equitable pursuit? Is that something we should be doing? So. All right, so I want to look at the perspective or the framework that we use for this particular study using um, a difference framework versus an equity framework, okay? And um, I know the term difference, I'm using this in the context of education because that's my field. Um, so that's the discourse that I'm going to use. Um, so differences, features unique to the identity um, of Asian Americans as the reason for conf conflict. Simple incremental steps. This is how we're going to conquer or create solutions. Um, we don't look at the root causes, um, and we don't look at existing power structures. We just sort of do a technical fix. Let's just do a tweak, right? Whereas an equity uh, framework looks at how power structures are constructed and reconstructed, deconstructed. Um, how, do our how does our identity inform how we interact or don't interact, right? That's an action, too. Um, and then it also pushes on, again, on these binary notions of the black-white um, paradigm. So. so I want to take a look at our participants in this particular study, which emerges from another study that I did with teachers. Um, and then these findings are a little bit different. But you can see here, there's three participants. It's not many, but we're all educators, all leaders. Um, and we're all, we all have administrative contracts and are doing quite well. Um, we're all very highly educated. In fact, we're more highly educated than anybody in our districts. Um, we have the most degrees of anybody, because that's what we were told. The dominant narrative was, get your PhD, and then things are going to work out for you. You know, like you're going to be a candidate to move up the ladder, right? Um, these are our language backgrounds, and you know, quite a lengthy time. I can't believe that I'm putting that there, but for a long time. Um, and we all experience interruptions in our administrative contracts that we didn't expect and didn't feel that were well-deserved. So very surprising, okay? So did I skip a slide? Yeah. So the next one is the identification through narrative. So I'm going to move over here. I'm going to crook my neck. Um, so I'll give you a moment to sort of look at that, and I'll... Okay. So look at this. The reporting of, I was hired because I wasn't black or white, but I was in between. So there's a neutrality and a safety 
to that racialized space, okay? Struggled with her biracial identity, okay? Tolerated as white. I, I was tolerated as white. I was white enough. This participant adopted to the margin of white circles, regarded herself as more white until a recent experience, um, perceived as suspect, right? Not trusted, okay? Had affinity groups that um, existed outside of the central office, out of our district offices, okay? So this toggling going back and forth. So I put over here on this side, this is something called ascriptions, and I talked about this earlier, that when people of color walk into a room, um, when, really when anybody walks into a room, there is an ascription. Someone is inscribed with meaning before they begin to interact. It could be their clothing, but race is one of those pernicious things that we can't, you know, clothing, you can change your wardrobe, but you can't change your race. As my dad said, Look at this face, like I can't change this face. This is, this is who I am. So, but the ascriptions were um, sort of ambiguous, like what are you, right? Oh, you're white enough, you belong with us. What are you, right? Um, and then the black-white binary, we are ascribed the brown space with other non-blacks. So again, we are aligned um, phenotype, uh, along the continuum of phenotypes as being um, in between and that we belong to that brown space. So. so the major findings and takeaways were um, we found that the participants, and myself included, were very much reproducers, that we really did take on that role of being honorary whites and wanting um, to do well, and also wanting to um, position ourselves as worthy of contributing to this thing called school equity, okay? But what we found is that we were interlocutors. So again, this is another corroborative finding from another study that I did, um, interlocutors between black and white colleagues. So when there was conflict between blacks and whites, what was found among all participants is the Asian female leaders were consulted when there is racial conflict between blacks and white. Black colleague comes in, talks to me about said white colleague, white colleague comes in, talks to me about said black colleague, and there's no interracial dialogue, and so there's this arbitrating space, right? So I was telling Arlen earlier, one of the things that happened, it was the dress rehearsal as they were trying to negotiate how they were gonna handle that inner, this, this racial conflict, but it was the dress rehearsal that never happened, right? So that's a complicating space that you're in between, and you're mitigating this very difficult thing. And it's not a role that's assigned um, or told that this is in your job description. It's something that very organically happened in all of our districts that were addressing racial inequities at all levels of the organization, okay? We were mediators of conflict and problem solvers, not just along lines of race, but generally speaking. And that oftentimes, because we were fearful of what um, particularly dominant spaces looked like, that we were acquiescent and subservient and um, largely did what we were told. So, so this, I, again, I'm pulling this slide from earlier today, but um, Asian leaders served as racial ambassadors, um, again, along this black-white binary. Not formal, but assumed. Um, and 
We want to solve the problem of racial inequality, and it's your job to do it, right? So that's a pretty big role. <laughs> um, but the goal was about solution and not resolution. It was all about the outcome and not about the process. It wasn't about the dialogue um, and the subcontracting of Asians for mitigators of racial um, conflict, which placed us always in a middle management role. So our leadership trajectory was always very limited. So, um, so we talked about the things that um, informed why we behaved in the way that we did and problematizing our own concomitants and reproducing this sort of role. Like if we were in this complicating interlocutor role, why is it that we didn't speak up about that? Um, and so some of this came back to, you know, to be a good Asian females, we have to behave in cooperation and subservience, right? So again, that concomitance, right? And we found, too, that our trajectory, we were trying to ascend the administrative ladder, but we found that we were doing that on the periphery, on the periphery, the edge of the stairs. We called it climbing sticks. And because we were climbing sticks, no one really saw us going up the stairs, which was problematic um, as this study concluded. And so what we ended up finding is that we called something called the lapdog syndrome. So how many of you have little puppies? Yeah, right? And so they sit nicely in your lap. And so just think about this, you know, someone smoking a pipe with a little dog sitting in their lap. And so we sort of poked aim at ourselves as being lapdogs um, by pledging our loyalty, working hard, acquiescing to intended leadership aims, um, playing the role of interlocutors, um, particularly to protect our bosses. That was one thing, too, was to protect our bosses. Um, and that our role was to anticipate our bosses' every move. And so we would take on roles that weren't assigned, but roles that we felt like we needed to, to, to perform, right? So um, this is interesting because, you know, are we, is it the institutional conditions that frame the way that we do things? Or is it our individual construction um, of reproducing the status quo, right? Is that what we really want? So, um, so one of the things that happens, too, with the lapdog syndrome, as we named it, is that when we behave differently than the model minority myth or stereotype would suggest, do we end up... Do we, by, by, when we fall out of that, we again lose our, our status as a guest, as an honorary white at the table, and then we're no longer a part of those sort of dialogues. So, anyway. So, again, we were not power, we were mediating roles in racial and power conflicts, but we were not power brokers. So, power negotiators versus brokers, it's a very complicated space. So, and because we're at, 8.05, I think I'm going to stop here. I have some more, but I think I'm going to stop here and open it up to questions. So.